You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. One of my goals on this podcast is to present an orthodox Trinitarian view of the Christian faith. Given the importance of articulating a clearly Trinitarian approach to Christian theology, I am very pleased and honored to have with us today again Dr. Chris Tilling, Head of Research and Senior Lecturer in New Testament Studies at St. Melitus College in London, England. Dr. Tilling, with Michael Bird, co-authored How God Became Jesus, published by Zondervan in 2014. Dr. Tilling's first book, the critically acclaimed Paul's Divine Christology, appeared in 2012 and was republished by Erdman's in 2015 with multiple endorsements and a new foreword. He is currently co-editing the T&T Clark Companion to Christology, as well as working on a commentary on 2 Corinthians for the new International Commentary on the New Testament, published as well by Erdman's. Dr. Telling has published numerous articles on topics relating to the Apostle Paul, Christology, Justification, the Historical Jesus, Karl Barth, and more. He is one of the co-hosts of the popular podcast OnScript, which is highly recommended and provides, as they say in their podcast introduction, world-class conversations on scripture and theology. Dr. Telling has appeared before on this podcast in episode 92 to discuss a wonderful book he edited and contributed to entitled Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, published by the Cascade Imprint of Whippenstock in 2014. This book involves a number of scholars interacting with the work of Dr. Douglas Campbell, of Duke Divinity School, who himself responds in the book to each of his interlocutors. In this episode, I am pleased to have Dr. Tilling back to discuss with us an important and very insightful essay of his entitled, Paul the Trinitarian. Welcome back, Dr. Chris Tilling, to the Grace Saves All podcast. It's a real honor to be back, David. Thank you so much. As I was saying to you, of course, before, I've I've caught a bit of a, a crankheit, a sickness, and I'm feeling um, a little bit um, unwell. Honestly, if if bacteria could be spread through internet podcasts, this would be an apocalyptic event right now. Uh, well, thank you for being willing to speak with us today, even though you're not on the top of your game. The, the essay that I wanted to discuss with you is entitled uh, Paul the Trinitarian. How can people find this essay? Well, it's in... Um, um, first and foremost, more formally, it's in a collection of essays, um, essays on the Trinity, I believe, edited by um, Lincoln Harvey. But I've uploaded the entire chapter now on my academia.edu, whatever webpage it is. Um, so you'll hopefully be able to find it online. If you type in Paul the Trinitarian and Chris Tilling on Google, um, you'll find it and be able to download it for free online. It's a precursor for a full-length book, by the way. So this is a taster, if you like, of of um, of something to come. Right. It sounds, uh, in, in reading the article, it feels very condensed. You're covering a lot of ground. Yeah. Uh, it, it's more, pro. It, the, the, the essay seems more programmatic to me in some ways. You're, you're, you're bringing up a lot more than you can fully explicate in the article, but you're, you're pointing some, some directions. 
Correct. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Well, one of the goals on this podcast is to present a vision of the Christian faith, which takes very seriously the core tenets of the Christian faith. And one of those core tenets, I believe, is the Trinity. I believe any serious Christian theology, whether it includes the prospect of a universal salvation or not, should take the Trinity seriously in order to be distinctly Christian. Mm. So my questions for you today are not so much about Christianity and universal salvation, but about Christianity and Trinitarian theology, specifically in what way we might evaluate the Trinitarianism inherent in terms Paul uses in his own words and theology, and then further, how we might evaluate the importance of the Trinity in general for Christian theology overall. So I'll begin by setting out the problem you raise and attempt to solve in your essay, Paul the Trinitarian. The problem you put on the table is whether or not it's even possible to say that Paul believed in the Trinity, given the fact that the formal doctrine of the Trinity, as it came to be developed over the early history of the church, is expressed in terms and language which Paul himself does not use. So my first question to you has two parts. First, what is it about the language of later formal Trinitarian theology which does not appear in Paul's letters? And secondly, could you rehearse for us the three ways modern scholarship has tried to handle this and why you think each of them fails in some way? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, the first thing that needs to be pointed out, it isn't, it isn't the lack of terminology in Paul's letters. Um, it's how the, the terms are used. Um, so the cre creedal Trinitarianism, which is probably the most important guide anybody can have for reading the Bible. It's the most important um, document for healthy worship. It's the heart of the Christian faith in, in, it's in so many ways. Um, and, and for many of us, it's ensconced primarily in the Nicene-Constantinopolitan settlement, um, which it took from Nicaea, effectively endorsed that, and then added a little bit more detail about the Holy Spirit, the deity of the Holy Spirit. And this settlement becomes the Nicene Creed. Um, so it's it's a little bit complicated, the entire history. But this is what many of us recite in church and believe to our core to be an essential doctrine stating who who God is, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the I language... Recited in worship the Nicene Creed this past Sunday. Right, right. There you go. Yeah, as did I. And the um, the the language used in the debates surrounding the development of these creedal documents um, chose particular terms and used them in a load bearing way. Language like um, um, usia, you know, tra translated variously as being or essence. Um, there hypostasis, when that is very difficult to know how to translate that. There's debate on, on this. It's often translated as person, but it can be synonymous with being. There's, there's um, thesis, um, which is another important word. Now, some of these words you will find in Paul's letters, um, others not, but it's not used in the same technical load-bearing manner. And then there's the importance in the creedal documents placed on on the way in which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinguished. Often the early Trinitarians developed their thinking in this regard in light of the doctrine of divine simplicity. And that meant they had 
you know, they had a difficult time describing and explaining how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be distinct from one another. And so the language of procession and begetting becomes hugely important. The Son is begot, eternally begotten, the Spirit proceeds, and so on. And these are then, um, at least if scholars like Stephen Holmes are to be believed, um, are logical distinctions rather than relational ones. Um, now, the thing is, all of that in mind, if we ask whether this is in Paul or not, well, we're not going to have too much luck. You know, there's a different set of conceptions in place. And so usually, which really brings me to the second part of of your question, usually what, what happens is scholars read Paul's letters and say, okay, we're going to ask this question, was Paul a Trinitarian? And we're going to ask it in light of the Nicene-Constantinopolitan settlement. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and at best, what you're going to find there are seeds for later Trinitarian dogma. And usually agricultural metaphors are deployed at this point. So the whole debate then becomes about the extent to which those seeds are present in Paul or not, and whether the development to creedal Trinitarianism is appropriate. Effectively, that's the scholarly debate, and it's divided up then into a few camps that we can we can get into in more depth, if you like. Yeah, I would like just if you could just sort of outline those three camps so that people who look at your article will kind of have a guide to what what you're going to talk about there. Yeah, so we'd say that the first the first model is quite suspicious of there being an organic natural link between Paul and later creedal documents relating to the Trinity. Um, effectively, they will say, look, the doctrine of the Trinity is articulated in a conceptuality to a certain degree alien to the New Testament. Divine simplicity, um, the nature of, of the definition of, of deity and so on, um, it's not to say that it could be completely absent from Paul's world, but it wasn't it wasn't central in in the same way. And so then they're going to look at Paul and say, we we have to avoid anachronism here. We cannot say Paul was a Trinitarian. And so we need to read Paul in light of his own idiom, his own Jewish and Second Temple, particularly Second Temple Jewish conceptuality. And what we then see is the distinguishing characteristics between father and son isn't um, a logical and relational one in terms of begetting, but it is rather to be understood in light of mediatorial figures in Second Temple Judaism. Exalted patriarchs, big cosmically massive angels and such like. So Jesus is then seen for many in this school to be effectively a really exalted mediatorial figure. And they will also question not um, monotheism, the idea that there is no God but one essentially, and as that as, as if that is a metaphysical um, statement about who God is, um, and then say, look, this later doctrine of the Trinity is projecting its own philosophical monotheism back onto Paul, and Paul didn't didn't believe any of this. Paula Fredrickson, for example, says that the she well she speaks of tortured Chalcedonianism, an austere and exclusive monotheism as if you know they they belong in the same camp but but not so for for second temple judaism and they're going to point to the complexities of paul's text as well you've got 
Romans 1 4 um, declared to be son of God with power in resurrection which looks like adoptionism and indeed adoptionist theology would draw on this or you've got 1 Corinthians chapter 15 which speaks of the subordination of the son to the father before God is a, you know all in all um, and then point to um, the 2 Corinthians chapter 1 which would say uh, um, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that Jesus has a God, according to this passage and, an, and another in Paul's letters. All of this put together, there isn't a natural organic link from Paul to the Trinity. Instead, Trinitarians drew on threads, only threads, and then supplanted that with particular philosophical documents. That would be the first model, effectively, um, for the relationship between uh, Paul and the Trinity. The second. Let me before little... you before you get to that. I did an interview with David Bentley Hart, and we talked about Gnosticism, and he said that in the ancient world there was a kind of an idea that just floating around in the milieu at that time. I'm I'm I'm, I'm hesitant. I'm not quoting Doctor Hart here, probably in a way that he'd be happy with. But the the basic idea is that there was some type of of very high god, Hotheos. And that then there was this lower fallen world. And the idea was that the high God was so high and this world was so low that there needed to be some type of intermediate figure between the two. Yeah. And that, so it was sort of natural to, for lots of people to sort of look at Christ as that kind of intermediate figure between the high God and, and our lowly world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's right. And the, I mean, it, in, in only the way that David Bentley Hart could do. You know, he's getting to the heart of the issue there when it comes to um, the early church debates relating to the person of Jesus, and this feeds into Marcionism. It feeds into the Christology debates. I mean, it's right at the very heart of everything there. And some might think that the, the way in which Gnosticism, which is probably a pretty Christian um, uh, um, quirk, a Christian development in a particular way drew on certain Jewish texts that spoke of mediatorial figures in order to um, present this particular um, like wisdom yeah to a certain extent yeah wisdom or Metatron and, and you know in, in, uh, the similitudes of Enoch um, come to the fore here with the son of man figure yeah lots of figures indeed could be used in that regard although they the gnostics are doing something re really weird with it all as well <laughs> which is <laughs> definitely a self uh, a development all right well let's continue on to your the second way that scholars try to work yeah well it. the second the second way is is the majority perspective the majority view um for whatever reason um but it's still by and large held by most scholars whether it be people like um, Tom Wright or um, Larry Hurtado to a certain extent or Richard Borkham, Douglas Campbell and and more besides. They would say there is more of an organic link between what we find in Paul and the doctrine of the Trinity. That the first model is too pessimistic and underestimates the extent of the evidence for seeds of the Trinity in Paul. And they tend to pick up on 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6 where Jesus as Lord seems to be included in a, in a reworking of the Jewish Shema in terms of its, its Greek um, uh, working. Crispin Fletcher-Louis does a lot of work on, on this as well. Um, they will pick up on Philippians 2 and the Christ hymn in order to see um, 
important claims made about the being of Jesus Christ, and particularly when you get to verses uh, 9 to 11 uh, for Richard Borkham. The intertext with Isaiah seemed to say something pretty astonishing about the divinity of Jesus. For someone like Mike Bird in his recent book, he's going to want to pick up on the being language in, in verses 6 through to 8. Um, um, now, I think they've, they've, they're adding an important um, thread to this discussion, but they're not suggesting that Paul was a Trinitarian. They're saying that the seeds for the, the Trinitarian dogma of the later church are there, and that it's much more natural. Um, the immediatorial figures, they're going to say, by and large, and this is where I would definitely agree with them, though informing some of Paul's language, don't help us understand the exalted state of Jesus um, sufficiently in Paul's letters. The mediatorial figures all seem to be in one way, shape or form created or subordinate, and I've contributed to this discussion myself in, in the book, Paul's Divine Christology. Um, and they want, they're going to admit, I mean, Mike Bird does something new in, in his recent uh, contribution, um, but they're all going to admit that there is some kind of development in the way the language of, of the Trinity is expressed later. It draws on some kind of conceptuality that was to a greater or lesser extent not there in Paul, um, but it's much more organic nonetheless, the link with the Trinity. And that's the, that's the third model. Uh, sorry, the second one. The second one, yeah. Just when you're describing that, you say, uh, you talk about Neil Richardson in his book, Paul's Language About God. He concludes his study with the claim that the later doctrines of the Incarnation and Trinity were the logical consequences of Paul's theological grammar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he's he's an example of someone I'd call a, um, a hard representative of this model rather than a soft representative. <laughs> he sees the, the relationship between the Trinity and the Paul as one involving um, logical necessity. And I'm going to agree with that, but in a very different way in, in how I articulate my case. And we'll come to that perhaps a little bit later on. Okay. But the third view... Um, very popular, very brilliantly articulated by a gifted scholar, Wesley Hill, in his book, Paul and the Trinity. Effectively, he argues that if we assume the later doctrinal expressions of the Trinity, we can fruitfully read and understand the New Testament in light of them, and then make sense of discrete arguments in Paul's letters, whether it be in Romans 8 or wherever else it is you know that there's it offers a conceptuality a grammar for a good reading of Paul now he wants to make some historical claims about Paul but the weight of his emphasis is on the hermeneutical question you know how we understand these texts um, so he's not too concerned about dealing with the phenomenon of intermediate figures and, you know, intermediary figures in Second Temple Judaism. I don't think they feature in his book at all. Um, it's much more of a hermeneutical model. And I think he's got some um, a, a very good point to make, and I love how he deals with subordinationist language um, in the book, and it's a book I highly recommend to anyone, but it's not for me, who's prim I'm primarily a historical critical reader of, of the New Testament. It's um, lacking in a robust enough engagement with the conceptuality and network of ideas inherent in Paul. It underestimates Paul's own theological vision. 
Um, in fact, I think that's the common denominator in many ways to all of these views. I mean, that's where I'm going to go in a moment if you want me to. But effectively, I'm going to say anachronism is cutting both ways here. We all know what anachronism is, right? It's, you know... Go ahead. Well, I mean, how would you define it? Just curious. Well, an anachronism is where you um, import a modern uh, a modern understanding of things back into a, a context where it wouldn't where it wouldn't have existed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so the locusts in Revelation. They're not UN helicopters, however much we want them to be, perhaps. It's, it's it, you know, D Donald Trump isn't named in Revelation. You know, th these are anachronistic readings. But anachronism is also a little bit more subtle, insidious, difficult to see. Um, I gave a talk just a couple of days ago, actually, on, on the issue of anachronism. And, and we are beset by them as readers of Paul. And, and I think we can all understand the concern here to take 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 alone. Um, I should probably get that verse up, but it's... Uh, let me get the NRSV updated edition um, in front. So here's the NRSV updated edition. Good translation, by the way. It makes some, makes some good advancements. Um, it goes as follows. Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. You can think, well, well, what could be wrong with that translation? There's so much there that we could just assume. I would say there are at least four terms there that we're using anachronistically. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, in, it's extensive. For example, ap apostolos. Apostle is how it's translated. Now, an apostle for us will probably be a an exclusively religious term, right? Right. Yeah. Like there's an a bishop and an apostle yeah. and an apostle. and But not so for Paul. I mean, this is a word that was used in, in ancient forms of benefaction. And we're dealing here with an emissary. And an apostolos was someone who was received with the honor that would have been accorded to the one who sent them. You know, so this is an this is what an apostolos is, an emissary. Um, we might think that might not make much of a difference, but much of Second Corinthians is obsessed with the question of apostleship. So already we're going to be running right past a key issue by translating it as apostle, or we might have to the church of God in Corinth. Now, for a church, what do we associate with the word church? A group well, where? Well, what do you think? Well, I, I just happen to know that that word uh, ecclesia was in the original Greek just a word commonly used for any kind of gathering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were you could define it a little bit more precisely. I, I think assembly is a good translation, and an assembly was uh, a gathering which inhabited the political register. Um, and um, it was certainly also used in, in a synagogue setting, the Ecclesia Tutheu, the Ecclesia of God, and, and so on, so or the Ecclesia of the Lord. And um, it would have been a way for Paul to say that here we have Jew and Gentile joining together in worship in, in a particular way that isn't to be uh, separated from the political dimension. Now, church 
Now, that word, we, we often say, well, this is where Christians alone gather and not Jews. It's, it's where we separate faith from politics. You know, there's a bunch of misconceptions we may layer in. And I could go on. There's a couple of other phrases in this, this uh, verse that are anachronism. Um, so we all understand the point, right? Anachronisms lead to misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And very often, if we're not sensitive to these things, we're just importing our own crap into Paul. It becomes very difficult to separate our voices from Paul's voice. And so the task of many in New Testament scholarship is to say, hang on, Paul isn't one of us, that we've got to remember alterity. Paul is distinct from us. And in doing that, we open up hermeneutical space to potentially hear Paul again for the first time. Now, I think we got that. My case when it comes to Paul and the Trinity is that anachronism is going the other way. We're judging the presence of the doctrine of the Trinity in Paul in light of Nicene-Constantinopolitan settlement language. That's anachronism. We've got to instead take Paul's own Second Temple Jewish conceptuality serious. And it's on that in that light and on that basis that I make the claim that Paul is himself a Trinitarian, not Nicene, He's not a Nicene-Constantinopolitan Trinitarian, obviously not, although the relationship between Paul's Trinitarianism and later creedal Trinitarianism, I think, is something we need to talk about, because there's indeed a great deal of consistency there, even if there are differences. Um, but I want to speak of Paul the Trinitarian, and that's the point of, of the essay, Paul the Trinitarian. Well, this is one of the things that I have really come to appreciate about the difference between somebody like me, who's a... I've got a master of divinity, a doctor of ministry and preaching, but I'm not a scholar. And what scholars do is immerse themselves in the world of Second Temple Judaism, New Testament scholars. And they they are able, like like you, are able to live in that world, in that context, in such a way that you can be sensitive to these types of issues in a way that I wouldn't you know, in a way that I wouldn't be able to. So that's one of the things I really appreciate, what the kind of, not just you, but the kind of conversation that scholars like you work on and 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 actually approach collegially, which is another thing I appreciate that you're, even though you're developing your own point of view, you are developing it in context in a collegial academic uh, conversation. Yeah, well, you certainly hope so, eh? Um, I know we Pauline scholars are known for being a little bit abrasive with one another. And I, I think it comes down to the fact that Paul is so load-bearing. You know, how we read and understand Paul relates to political and theological positions that are deeply entrenched, which is one reason why it's so important to distance ourselves from Paul. I mean, ultimately, I mean, if, if we have time, David, I'd love to relate more generally on on how this relates to reading Paul, um, because this is where the rubber hits the road. Okay. Well, let's continue on through the more programmatic part of your essay, and then we can come back to that more general comment. Yeah, to remind me. um, My my brain is a little scatty. (laughs) Okay, Um, I'll do it. Yeah, so I'm I'm making a case for Paul as a Trinitarian in, in four theses. This is going to be a little bit of a flyby. So I'm condensing an essay that is condensing 
um, a later monograph that will appear in a few years' time. Um, so stop me if anything makes absolutely no sense. But okay. the first thesis is is the most load-bearing and is going to write, require a lot of work, actually, in, in dialogue with some recent work that has come out. But it states that God's godness, God's divinity, God's transcendent uniqueness, that which makes God um, God over against that which isn't God, uh, is Paul's Jewish God relation language of pattern. That's that's the first thesis. Now, let me unpack that. To, to understand that, we need to see that for Paul, true theological knowledge is bound up with relational intuitions. And this is in you know, 1 Corinthians 8.3. Paul is dealing with the Corinthian knowledgeable. These are people who are claiming true knowledge and are therefore using that true knowledge, sorry, using that true knowledge to therefore justify going into the pagan temples and eating the meat they're offered to idols. And this is their justification. True dogmas, there is no God but one, taken straight from scripture, and there is no idol in the world. So they're using these theological propositions in order to justify a certain kind of behavior. The problem is, it's, right, it's wreaking havoc with other Christ followers who see this as capitulation again to idolatry. And the church isn't large in Corinth, you know, so we're dealing here with another family, perhaps, who are behaving in a certain way, and they're being scandalized. This isn't merely offended. This isn't about offense. This is about people giving up commitment to Jesus and embracing pagan idolatry again. Um, and Paul responds to these knowledgeable in 1 Corinthians 8, and he says, knowledge, that kind of knowledge, puffs up, but love builds up. Now, he's not being anti-intellectual because in the next verse, he goes on to speak of a necessary knowing. Um, but then he elucidates that necessary knowing in verse 3. It's loving God and being known by him. Now, this is all very Jewish, Second Temple Jewish stuff. It's drawing on the Shema, which in Hebrew is one sentence. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, and so on and so forth. It's one sentence. Any understanding of God's oneness or uniqueness, is bound up with loving God. And so this is a relational account of knowledge. And Paul uses it to, to correct those who think that theology is having correct statements on a piece of paper. Well, that's a word of judgment, by the way, for many um, in the church who think that true theology is just about getting a good essay out or understanding the right things, irrespective of how you live. And so for Paul, there's a relational account of what counts as true theological knowledge. If that is so, and this is absolutely crucial, to quote um, Nathan MacDonald and his important work on monotheistic language. Now, I'm, I'm doing quotation marks in for those listening on audio uh, because monotheism is a really tricky word to use when applying it to scripture. But monotheism isn't simply a truth to be comprehended, Nathan MacDonald said. It's a relationship in which to be committed. That gets us to the heart of the matter. If that is so, in order to map Paul's God discourse, we need to pay attention to relational themes in the identification of this God. Otherwise, we're missing Paul's relationally, deuteronomically shaped theological instinct, instincts. And what emerges is a broadly identifiable God relation pattern that Paul shared with vast swathes of Second Temple Jewish texts across genres. And we're talking 
pretty much every text in the Old Testament that speaks about God and multiple texts around the day of Paul as well. And this is what it involves. It involves God communicating with people and people speaking back. It involves God's presence and activity. Um, and often that's spoken of in terms of the spirit and yet God's strange absence. God is characterized in typical ways with typical tropes. Devotion to God is expressed in concrete ways in the cult and beyond the cult. That which is opposed to devotion to God is characterized in typical ways. This is the point. The God relation pattern expresses God's transcendent uniqueness in my argument. Only God, this is why, only God is spoken of in terms of this conceptual pattern of language. No other figure, no other intermediary figure, however exalted, shares this. So internal to Paul's relational idiom, we see a pattern that speaks not merely about God's unique metaphysical status, but of God's godness, this is it, expressed in terms of a lived, exclusive, covenantal relationship with God over against capitulation to idolatry. So the godness of God is for Paul the God relation. That's the first pattern. That's the most difficult to get, by the way. What do you think so far? Makes sense? Well, it's just, to simplify it, there's a way that Paul talks and expresses himself relationally to God in a in what we would think of as a monotheistic, although I'll use those scare quotes around that like you did, monotheistic um, understanding. And it's what you're noting is Paul's going to come along and use that same kind of relational language when he's referring to Jesus. So... Yes, that brings us to step two. That brings yeah. us to the second thesis, really. And what I've said about the godness of God isn't just a description of relational themes. It is that because Paul's epistemology, his way of knowing is relational. It's often been missed by my reviewers um, for some reason. I don't think it's complicated, but but there we are. So the, the second thesis, you're absolutely right, is that the Christ relation pattern of data in Paul is analogous only to Pauline God relation language, which is the godness of God. Um, so what do you get when you look at Paul's letters? You read about Christ communicating with his people and people speaking back to Christ. Even Paul, who's you know running around the ancient Mediterranean world, and he prays to Christ to take away his thorn in the flesh. You know, So he believes that Christ is present and active and able to answer those kind of things. So he will often speak of the presence of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. But Christ is also absent, um, apousia. You know, we're, we're waiting for, for, the, for the presence of Christ, the parousia, sorry, the um, uh, aparousia. Um, Christ is absent at the moment. He's characterized in ways typical that you'd find in God relation language. Devotion to Christ is expressed in light of a typical Jewish God relation language. What what is opposed to Christ devotion is characterized in ways that you'd find in Jewish God language. Now that this is the claim. All these things about the Christ relation in Paul overlap in general contours and in detail with the Jewish God relation, and Paul does this by drawing on scriptural God language, depicting, I think, a very Jewish way of speaking of the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, Mary Healy um, claimed that for Paul, 
uh, theology is expressed as relationship. So I think what we've got here, and I think she's, I think she's right in many regards. I want to, you know, add a few layers to that. But the point is this: that means that the Christ relation is Paul's divine Christology, because it is Christ inhabiting the Jewish godness of God, the God relation. That's the second. But there's two more. <laughs> do you want me to go on to them, or do you, under, do you understand the point so far? Does it make sense? Yeah. What do you think? Yes. Well, uh, without being anachronistic here. We can look at the world of Second Temple Judaism and just observe that there were certain ways that a Jewish person would have addressed God. And Paul, uh, we can see examples of that in Paul. But then strikingly, we see examples of this type of personal relational language used between Paul and Jesus. And if, as you say, that we need to understand Paul's language relationally, this is a striking kind of fundamental observation to make. And before we, this, this seems kind of foundational and that we would then from making, this would be kind of the first big thing to notice before we tried to move on. If we're trying not, if we're trying to really understand Paul in his, in his own world. Yeah. If we're going to try and understand what Paul says about God, in other words, the core, the heart, we need to understand these these issues about relationality. And it's important to recognize, we might think, why didn't Paul just say Jesus is God? Full stop. Nice little handy proposition, case solved. Well, it isn't as simple as that. Because hotheos uh, um, is, a, is a, a noun that could have been used to describe um, Moses, uh, the Satan, you know, Second Corinthians 4 verse 4. So, you know, when Jehovah Witnesses get hung up on the whole Hotheos thing, it's a red herring. It's, it's almost irrelevant to this discussion because that noun was very flexible. So we've got to get back to Paul's way of understanding the godness of God. It's the God relation. Hey, presto, the Christ relation is the God relation. So to use our colloquialisms, Jesus is God for Paul in this way. And when you say ho, when we're saying ho theos, ho is a definite article in in Greek, and then theos is the just the Greek word for God. That's right. Basically. And a lot of the debate in for Jehovah Witnesses, for example, is is theos anathras or not? And you know, John one one and all of that. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You've got ho theos in Second Corinthians four four, and it's Satan, <laughs> not God, that's being described. So this is this is the, a non anachronistic way of engaging with. These questions. But, so a whole, so a whole theos could just be an elevated spiritual being. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So um, when we read the Torah, we read that Moses will be a El, you know, Elohim to to Aaron. Um, so it's God to Aaron. Um, so we we um, we need to recognize that the language for a Jew was much more flexible. Okay. And that's why we've got to do the work of establishing the godness of God for Paul, for a Jew like Paul. And when we do that, we see that Jesus Christ is included um, in what counts as the godness of God. But what about the Holy Spirit? This is All right. this is the third thesis. Um, because at the moment, and note that, I've got, I'm developing my thinking on this, but at the moment, my third thesis states that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, mediates and actualizes 
both the God and Christ relations for Paul. And the spirit, in other words, is the activity that relates God, the Father, and the Son um, to those who are um, following Jesus Christ. The God and Christ relations are relations, and therefore meaningful theologically, precisely because of the activity of the Holy Spirit. So God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. God supplies the Galatians with his spirit and so works miracles amongst them, Galatians 3.5. The Corinthians are a letter of Christ. Why? Well, they're not written with ink, but, quote, by the spirit of the living God, 2 Corinthians 3.3. So Christ and God are present and active and in relationship with his people by means of the Holy Spirit. And this is the crucial thing about my three theses so far. I'm not just pulling out little texts, proof texts, in a, in a scattered corners of Paul's letters. This is present, these three theses are present in an interrelated way in almost every chapter Paul wrote. We're getting to a deep structure of Paul's conceptuality and theological fabric in talking about these theses that involves the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. In that light, I would then, in the fourth thesis, return to the so-called seeds of Trinitarianism. And that's effectively um, where we could go now. Or, or any, any comments, thoughts in light of that? Make sense so far? Well, it's just, to me, it's interesting in that I'm used to hearing uh, debates about the Trinity in terms of hypostasis and usia and the different persons and how many wills there were in Christ or how many wills did he have, how many natures did Christ have, the later sort of Trinitarian controversies that, yeah, yeah. that develop. So I just think it's, I always think it's interesting to hear someone like you talk about Paul, Second Temple Judaism, the way that uh, Jewish people would have used divine language and to try to, the way that you can get um, not acronistically into that world through looking at the, at, the, at the actual Greek text in a way that just somebody like me, who's a normal English reader and depending on English translations is going, not going to, I'm not, I'm going to read the English translation and not be disturbed about it in the way that you are, because you're reading the Greek and you're saying, "Hold on a minute this this word is used a lot of different in lot in much more nuanced ways in, in other settings." So I'm just enjoying. That it's like a a good seminary class where you listen to <laughs> you know where you listen to a New Testament scholar, and you think to yourself, "That's why," and that's why there are people that do what you do. That that's that's a whole that's a whole academic. Uh, career right there, just what you're attempting. So that's... Well, yeah. Well, thanks. You know, where I feel that us New Testament scholars often fail, however, is that many of us think that job is done when we say that's an anachronistic reading and we just point out the oddness of Paul's letters. The New Testament scholar needs to also constructively put things back together again. Um, and that's effectively what I'm trying to do with Paul the Trinitarian. Um, so that puts me to one side of many New Testament scholars, oddly. But the fourth thesis, to finish okay. it off, 
is that when we understand this wider grammar, you know, the, the three theses, the conceptual idiom that Paul deployed in speaking about the threefoldness in the identity of the godness of God, we can reread those seeds of Trinitarianism in a completely new way. In all of all of a sudden, it's like the magic eye tricks. You know, they pop out three D. Three D. And for example, take First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse four, where it says says this. And and pay attention when I say varieties and same. Okay, when varieties and same. Now there are there, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them. So what we have here is Paul contrasting the varieties of gifts, services and activities with the same spirit, Lord Jesus and God. So God's godness exemplifies in chapter uh, 12 of 1 Corinthians unity in diversity the diversity of father son and holy spirit in the unity of god's godness so it follows that when we read this passage i think in light of wider pauline and jewish conceptuality which i we've discussed we can feasibly speak of the triune faith of paul and thus of paul the trinitarian so i would submit to anyone um wrestling along with us on the podcast, that we can meaningfully speak of Paul the Trinitarian articulated on his own terms. And this, uh, David, I think, is why it matters. We we have botched reading Paul, I think. Um, We have been caught up in a tradition of reading which has a lot of good things in it. But at key points, it has sold its soul to the spirit of the age, namely contractualism and individualism. And it mobilizes a particular account of who God is that isn't there in Paul's letters. It's a, it's a, it's a theology that says, OK, God is primarily angry with us, wrathful because we are sinful and culpable. And in order to get the good stuff, we need to actualize what God has offered by sending his son to die on the cross in our place. So we've got in this kind of theological system a doctrine of the atonement. We've gotten a way of understanding faith and how that actualizes uh, salvation through a contract, effectively. If that's the, the theological undergirding of our reading of Paul, we are screwed. You know, we're not going to understand Paul's letters. The depth of the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely vital for understanding Paul. And what we see instead is a profoundly participationist theology that is effectively about the unconditional love of God who sends Jesus Christ. You know, Romans 5, 8 business. We, uh, this is, um, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Not when we were repenting, not when we believed, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He assumes our enslaved Adamic nature, and that is terminated on the cross. And God raises Jesus Christ from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, where God, and he ascends, 
and he sits at God's right hand where he lives to make intercession for us. That story of dissent and ascent, which is Trinitarian, did you notice, in Paul's way, all of mm -hmm. the actors involved. This is Paul's gospel, not the other one. This is Paul's gospel. That story is your story, David. It's my story. It's the story of the universe. Um, Paul says, we believe that one died, therefore all died, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In, in one of the most astonishing verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, have a look at verse 14 later on, where we believe that we will be raised with him. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus is our death and resurrection. This is Romans 6 stuff, right? It's It gets us to the heart of Paul's en Christo language, in Christ. And so what we see emerging um, from reconceptualizing Paul in light of the, the Trinity, indeed, is a beautiful, liberating, universal gospel that is about the death of all and the resurrection of all in Jesus Christ. Well, the way so, this uh, the way this affected affected me, just sort of personally on the on the on the ground level, is I think like a lot of people, you know, um, when I first started, I didn't grow up in church, and I went through my own kind of process of trying to come to some terms of spirituality. You do it first in kind of an individual way. You start wondering, well, what am I going to do about my own salvation? What am I going to do about when I die? What's going to happen to me? Uh, how am I going to navigate life and the different problems that I face? And um, so, but the further I went into it, and especially after getting a chance to go to seminary and then be in ministry, is while there is an aspect that this is about me, there's a much bigger thing that's going on that's about God and the cosmos and everything. And once I sort of widened my lens started widening my lens i just say once that lens started widening it just started encapsulating everything yeah and i started thinking this isn't about me as it's much it's about us it's about something is happening to all of us in christ in some way we're being gathered into god's trinitarian life and once, once I started thinking of it that way, it just kind of flipped everything. It kind of flipped everything around, and it wasn't about what do I have to do to get into something. It's about realizing, wait a second, I'm already in something. I'm in something that's already happening, and all of us are in it together, and it's all been actualized, in a, I think, in a Trinitarian way in Christ, and so that once I got that picture of it, it really changed how I saw everything. But then practically, it's difficult then to communicate that to somebody who hasn't had that sort of epiphany because you can say all those things and then the response will be, but how do I know when I'm saved? Yeah. And this, well, you're still not kind of getting it. <laughs> yeah. You're, this is about... This is about awakening to a depth of spiritual understanding that changes your orientation about everything. Yeah. And as long as you're just thinking of it atomistically about your individual existence and some kind of tr contract that you're trying to get right with God so you can go to heaven after you die, you're, you're just kind of living in a different world, spiritual world, than the, at least the one that Paul was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. 
I'd be interested to hear what you what you think, because some might hear right that you learning and discovering that it's much more than just you. You know, it's it's about this grand trinitarian story. Did that make you feel less important in God's eyes? I think what it made me feel like was that everybody there that everybody is important. But I'm important, but everybody's important. Somehow we are all participating in this together. So as much as I might want to write off somebody, I can't write them off because they're a part of God's trinitarian plan and life in some way like I am, that we are all a part of this together. So everybody's, yes, I'm important, but everybody is important. We, we're all a part of this massive plan that God is working together. So I guess that's the way it affected me. Yeah, lovely. I suppose you could say, right, that for, for many who are captured by a particular contractual view of, of salvation, there's always going to be a certain amount of anxiety involved if you're reflective. Because a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And however much theology we inflect the language of pistis or faith in Paul's letters, ultimately it's our faith. And then we're anxious. Have I believed right. enough, sincerely enough, and so on. And so this, this en Christo way of, of seeing things, this Trinitarian way of understanding what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, means that it's ultimately all about Jesus and that, yes, us, but it's ultimately about Jesus. And I'd certainly say that, that the health of a theological position or of any psychology is, is healthy to the extent that it can say that it doesn't take itself too seriously. We don't need to take ourselves too seriously. We're taken seriously by God in Jesus Christ and therefore liberated to live lives of discipleship and obedience and love and worship. Well, there's kind of a, uh, to me, the, the word that just came is sacramental, that there's a sense of sacredness to life and to people and to what's going on. And if you feel like you're just walking around inside of a sacrament, something that is becoming holy, it is on the way to deification, as I have come to think of it, then if what I'm experiencing in all of its mess and misery and agony is something that is on its way to deification, then I have the eyes to see that. Yeah. And and it just helps me to live in this broken world because I can see these signs of hope in, in becoming that that's happening. And then I can imagine this greater theological picture of the the Trinity. I'm 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 moved by uh by Jesus' prayer in John 17 where Christ prays that they may all be one as you are in me and I'm in you. Yeah. May they also be in us. May they be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become completely one. And I just made a note for this podcast. This means to me that however we conceive it, the ultimate intention of God with humanity is to raise humanity into the experience of joyful union in the Trinity. We're being prepared for and invited into the life of the divine Trinity. My hope and expectation is that this is the destiny of all humanity. But however Christian theology imagines our ultimate state in eternity, that imagination should be Trinitarian in shape. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, indeed. 
Um, maybe it's worthwhile just for me to saying one final thing. In um, I couldn't put it as beautifully as that, but what I've I hope I'm going to model in this very brief podcast with you um, this flyby of some complicated scholarship is that we need to put Paul back in his own world and not read him anachronistically, be that prospectively or retrospectively anachronistically. Um, and when we do that, we start to see a beautiful Trinitarian, um, Christ-saturated theology um, that is the ultimate hope. Well, I, I appreciate your, your scholarship in some of the similar ways I, I appreciate what Douglas Campbell is doing, in that you're both doing very high-level academic work in languages, in cultures, Second Temple Judaism, um, but you're also uh, trying to understand how this is a part of an experience that you're, a spiritual experience that you're having right now, and and that you are trying to articulate it, not in terms of just an academic argument, but something that can reach out and really make uh, a practical difference in the, in the lives of everyday Christians who are trying to um, have a, you know, a continual, I guess one of the problems that you have in the Christian life as you go on is that it could get stale. It could seem sort of rote and at a while, in a while seem repetitive. But I think if somebody's listening to you that they should, they should think, well, there's, there's, there's more depth here. There's more for me to, to think about. There's a, there's a, a wider angle, wider lens that I can begin to view things. So uh, I think you're doing really important work. And I, I thank you for taking some time to speak with us today, even though you're not feeling on the top of your game. Well, I much appreciate being here. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.